Will you be the one to help Indiana Jones figure out the fate of Atlantis? Well, let's find out with Indiana Jones and the fate of Atlantis this week on the Upper Memory Block podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? And welcome to episode number 83 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back with you once again after a a little bit of a delay to talk about a game from the Dawson pre-Windows XP gaming era. Well, um... Yeah, it, it's it's been a while. Life got super hectic for for a little bit there. Uh, work went crazy, and I went on a trip and this and that. But uh, but now I'm here, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's Friday, December eighteenth, and uh, I literally just got home from seeing Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. Uh, no spoilers, but um, go see it, everyone. It's an amazing, amazing film, an amazing experience. If you're into Star Wars in any way, shape, or form, uh, you should check it out. I'm going to be recording my other show, The Star Wars Stacks, a little bit later, where we're going to be doing uh, our spoiler-filled uh, reactions to the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the big news. So we got a super big show, lots of emails, lots of content, all of that stuff. So let's get right into uh, emails. Before the show, we've got one uh, kind of more general email from, uh, from my good buddy Chris. And he writes, Greetings, Joe and fellow upper memory blockers. I've been meaning to write in and finally find myself with the ability to do so. Thank you for your excellent shows over the last few months. The recent episode on Homeworld has to be in my personal top five of UMB casts, and this is most noteworthy because I only played Homeworld 1 for a brief time. Unfortunately, I had some sort of system incompatibility which wasn't easily fixed back then, and the re-release date and the uh, release date of the game, 1999, put it squarely in my last year of college where my game time was quite limited. I always look forward to the sound captures that you do for each episode, whether it's music, a cutscene, introduction, or dialogue. Now, the music played during Homeworld, the uh, Homeworld episode almost caused me to pull the car over and listen again. Uh, you mentioned that the Homeworld 1 soundtrack sounded familiar and stayed in the ambient type genre, and uh, I want to identify the musical theme present in your first few clips. Uh, the amazing classical slash choral piece is uh, an adaptation of Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. This title has a bit of personal, a bit of a personal connection, which I'll explain shortly. But the movie buffs out there, paging Dos Nostalgic, probably know this most famously as the music that underscores the climax of Oliver Stone's Platoon. Willem Dafoe's character stretches his arms out and looks skyward as the music builds to its peak. And while this isn't a movie podcast, this moment and really the use of adagio for strings throughout the movie represents perfection in underscoring and soundtrack. I am simply awestruck by the Homeworld soundtrack and will be adding it to my library ASAP. Thank you for highlighting this in addition to the other game elements as I did not realize this piece was present the first time I attempted to play the game years ago. Okay, a bit of an aside here. I mentioned a personal connection and here it is. During my junior year of high school, circa 1995, I had a very demanding but ultimately excellent English literature teacher who was, quite frankly, in love with the Romantic era which for classical music includes composers like Berlioz, uh, Debussy, Mendelssohn, and Strauss. 
We were each given a list of Romantic era poems to choose from and told to create a five to 10 minute presentation on the meaning of the poem. I chose Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. That's a, this is Joe speaking now. That is a great one. Back to the email. We were also instructed to choose music from the era and adagio for strings immediately came to mind. When the teacher heard my enthusiasm for the music, particularly, uh, he granted me a bit of leeway because while stylistically similar, Barber is considered more of a neo-romantic composer, but that's a subject for another day and another podcast. The presentation went well, and the music was a big hit. Some of the class recognized it from the movie, and I received a good grade. To this day, hearing Adagio for Strings brings about an immediate and tangible emotional response, and I have a feeling that when I do encounter it in Homeworld, I'll be sitting back watching and listening, as you said, perhaps a few times over. The epic nature of Homeworld's soundtrack dovetails in with much of its inspiration, Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica. Last time I checked, two incredible genre-defining soundtracks, though I would also add that the work on the reimagined Battlestar Galactica by Bear McCreary is a must-listen and incidentally similar to that of Homeworld. Thanks for such great work on the UMB cast and for allowing me to delve into the past to talk about one of my all-time favorite musical selections in support of soundtracks. I would have put Homeworld on my must-play list regardless, but the music and atmosphere really takes it to the next level. Hello, Winter Steam Sale. Here's hoping. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I say this due to your expected presence in the States and moreover, a happy holiday season. Keep on rocking and blocking. Chris O at CGO apps. Well, thank you, Chris. And uh, I am a huge, huge fan in general of uh, of the reimagined Battlestar Galactica and also a big fan of Bear McCreary's, uh, Bear McCreary's music on it. I, I have it in my library. I listen to it. I love kind of the, the, the themes and the drums and, and, and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I talk about it on the show all the time, but great music really does make a great game for me. I mean, it makes it more memorable. It makes it a deeper experience. So, so you know, to me, music is is just as important a part of a game as the gameplay, as the, you know, graphics, as the storyline. I mean, the music at times is part of the storyline. So, you know, that's just such such an important part for me and you know that might that might come from things like star wars and Battlestar, or growing up with with things like that that have this kind of epic score that that is very memorable but uh yeah i mean we're humans and i guess for some reason we uh you know we have a proclivity towards identifying pattern and identifying patterns in things and i think you know music is sort of one of those things that uh that speaks to us on on a very very base level so thanks for that and uh let's get on with the show you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Overview. All right, time to get to the main event. I am going to be talking about Indiana Jones today. Now, well, I wouldn't really call them a series. I'm going to be covering a set of two games with a focus on the second one. Those two games are Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which came out in 1989, and Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, which released in 1992. Now, there is a third game, and even more than that, but really there's there's one other game that we sort of care about called Indiana Jones and the Emperor's Tomb from 2003. I'm going to touch on that one a little bit, but it's sort of outside my scope, and I think I'm going to run out of time anyways. Uh, so these first two games were both developed and published by LucasArts. That's another reason I'm going to kind of leave the rest of them aside, because uh, they were published by LucasArts, a lot of them, but not uh, not necessarily developed by LucasArts. So let's talk genre. Well genre. Ah, we're back in our happy place. These are LucasArts scum-based 
adventure games as we know scum stands for script creation utility for maniac mansion and uh you know i know for a fact that i do not have to explain what an adventure game is but i'm sort of known for it now so hey let's go you are placed in the role of one or more protagonists who uh, who are tasked with accomplishing a quest of some sort early on in the game this can be done explicitly through issuing a proclamation that you know sir whoever will accomplish this quest or it can be done situationally, like you you walk out of your house and uh, you know see someone get hit by a car and you want to uh, investigate what went on. Uh, you know, so you move through the world. You generally this world is split into a series of different rooms or different screens, and uh, as the story unfolds, you'll find uh, that you've collected quite a little, quite a bit of information and likely quite a few items in your inventory. Uh, whether they fit in on your person or not is usually uh, pretty irrelevant. You'll also find that you'll be faced with challenges in the form of puzzles. Uh, these puzzles can take the form of you know, logic, problems, history questions, mathematics, arcade sequences, item breakdown and recombination. Anything else you can think of can really be turned into an adventure game puzzle. In addition to uh, environmental puzzles, you'll also interact with non-player characters who will either help you uh, by giving you information or physically assisting you. They'll present you with additional puzzles or they will may even actively try to bar your path, you know, because people like to get in your way. Eventually, though, if you haven't given up, you'll uh, you'll solve all the puzzles and end up at the culmination of your quest and what is hopefully a fulfilling ending sequence, uh, which is usually a puzzle or some other type of challenge in and of itself, which results in an ending cinematic cutscene. So since we're going through two games and they're related but not related, we're going to go through them one at a time. So first things first, we're going to start with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So given that this is an adventure game, one of the biggest components of, of the adventure is the story. Uh, I figure we'll start off with a quick skim of the first game, like I said, and we'll get into the second one in a bit more detail. Of course, all these games, all of them, not just these two, every single one takes place in the world of Indiana Jones as seen in the three films that were available at the time and the four films, I guess, uh, <laughs> as they are today. For the most part, you take on the role of the hero of the series, Dr. Henry Walton, Indiana Jones Jr. Dr. Jones is an archaeologist and professor at Marshall College in Connecticut. Marshall College is not a real place. It is a fictional college. Uh, his character is modeled after the adventuring heroes of uh, 1930s film serials that, uh, you know, that George Lucas uh, grew up with. To that end, he's not just a guy, he's not just a teacher, you know, who sits in a classroom spouting dates to his students. Dr. Jones, or Indiana, or Indy, as he's more commonly known, is a treasure hunter, uh, with the bulk of his archaeological research focused on uncovering the whereabouts of long-lost antiquities. Uh, now, this isn't just theory, though. Indy takes it upon himself to actually trace the path and brave all sorts of dangers to recover the targets of his studies and make sure they are given a good home because he is, as he is very fond of saying, That belongs in a museum! Exactly. So, since Indy is based on 1930s adventurers, uh, his own adventures are set in that same time period, uh, you know, kind of pre-World War II uh, and because of that, his path is usually blocked by members of the Third Reich. Uh, Nazis tend to get into Indy's way quite a bit, among others. 
So for this first game, um, the story is simple. It's The Last Crusade. It's a movie tie-in. So the story of the game follows that of its namesake film, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, There really isn't much else to say. If you've seen the movie, you know the story. After recovering the Cross of Coronado, Indy is approached by a businessman named Walter Donovan who is searching for the Holy Grail. Indy's father was obsessed with the Grail, and uh, Indy points Donovan in that direction. Hey, go talk to my dad. It turns out Donovan has already met with Henry Jones Sr., and uh, unfortunately... It turns out that he's uh, he's gone missing. From that realization onward, in true indie fashion, we travel to uh, catacombs of Venice, to a German castle to rescue our father, and eventually to the location of the Grail itself, where, using clues picked up throughout the game, you have your own chance to choose wisely. Okay, so we're going to do kind of gameplay tech focus dev story kind of all in one on this guy. So uh, Last Crusade is very much a uh, an early scum adventure game. You navigate the screen using a mouse and uh, along the bottom of the screen, there's a, a series of verbs. It's through these verbs that you interact with the world. Now in Last Crusade, there's quite a few of them more than we'll see in later games. Uh, some are more useful than others. These verbs are push, pull, give, open, close, look, walk to, pick up, what is, use, turn on, turn off, talk, and travel. Now, below these verbs, uh, you see a scrollable list of your inventory. Uh, in what would later become a much more streamlined process, you string together some series of verbs and objects to, uh, to perform an action. So, for example, uh, at one point, you, uh, you encounter a boar roasting over a fire in a fireplace. Uh, this may possibly be in a Nazi castle, but uh, no spoilers. Uh, well, unlike in later scum games, the descriptions of hotspots don't automatically appear in the status text or you know near your cursor when you hover over them. Instead, uh, you know you can guess and simply click on something. Clearly, a big rotating boar might be something you would want to interact with, or you can click the "What is" verb, which sort of activates a, a hotspot discovery mode. So. If you want to interact with an unknown object, uh, it can take quite a few mouse clicks. Now, it'd go like this. So first, you click on what is to enter the identification mode so you can identify what a hotspot is. And then you'd click on the hotspot. This will default uh, your, your action to walk to item, say walk to boar. Then you'll click on a verb. Maybe you want to pick up the roast boar. So you'd click on pick up. And then you'd click again, either on the roast boar or on the verb to actually perform the action. So fine, maybe that first click is optional, but that is three to four clicks for any interaction in the game. It's it's a bit convoluted to say the least, whereas, you know, say you wanted to look at the boar, 
in like another Lucas in a later LucasArts game, you would hover over the board, it would say roast boar, and then you would right click on the roast boar and it would say, hey, it's a roast boar or something like that. And if you want to pick it up, you just click pick up roast and then you click on the roast boar. So that's two clicks where you could use the hotkey for pick up. So you'd be a key press and a click. So it's that one or two extra clicks. It doesn't sound like a lot, but in UI design, if you go into UI design and all that, not just for games, but for, you know, applications in general and websites and all that, adding a click or two to every interaction really, really, really detracts from the experience. Also, <laughs> as you progress through the game, you will notice a preponderance of mazes, uh, be they the Venetian catacombs or the halls of a Nazi castle. You spend a lot of time navigating your way through hallways, around corners, or across different floors, blah, blah, blah. Now, frustrating UI and world design aside, Last Crusade is actually a somewhat unique and actually pretty groundbreaking game within the pantheon of LucasArts Adventures. Uh, firstly, since this is still an early game, uh, the whole LucasArts Adventure philosophy of you know being free to explore and being totally safe hadn't really been solidified uh, as of yet. Now, what did that mean? Well, Unlike later games like uh, Sam and Max and, you know, even Full Throttle, which is a violent game, uh, this one has dead ends. So one of the biggest challenges in the game is uh, is right at the end. You have to choose the right grail. You have to, you know, choose wisely. You gather information about this fairly early on in the game. And if you don't take note of that particular information, it is basically impossible to choose the right grail unless you just go for trial and error, which is annoying because when you get into the last area, the kind of grail cave or whatever it's called, uh, you can't actually save your game once you go into the three trials, which is uh, kind of the last three things you do to save the game. So you have to, if you choose the wrong grail, which I did, unfortunately, twice, uh, you have to redo the three trials, which are not particularly hard, but, well, it's irritating. Um, and these games also have uh, have combat, and this combat, at least in this game, is actually somewhat challenging, and if you lose a fight, game over. You can die. So like I said, Full Throttle is, uh, you know, a violent game, but if you die, Ben just kind of goes, ah, let's try that again. <laughs> in this game, it's like, sorry, restore. Oh, I thought this was a LucasArts game. Well, it is, but it's from 1989. Unlike other LucasArts games as well, Last Crusade and uh, and Fate of Atlantis that followed it also introduced a points system, which uh, which carried on into the next game. Um, so you have an indie quotient similar to uh, to Sierra's points, and uh, those points would increase based on your actions. Your high score would be uh, would be retained through through different playthroughs. Like I said, it carries into the next game. So you know, if at this playthrough you came out with 530 indie points, and then you play through again, maybe you'll come out with more indie points or less indie points, and that'll tell you kind of how how complete you completed the game and how difficult a path you took through the game. The maximum score was 800 which could be achieved by taking the most challenging path through the game. So so this game, in addition to uh, having this point system and having fighting and having dead ends also had multiple paths to the end. Uh, it, they're, they're not paths as officially as we'll see in Fate of Atlantis, but certain decisions will lead to different events occurring. Uh, if you do one thing at a certain point, you have to give up either the Grail Diary or you know a book that looks like the Grail Diary. If you give up the diary, then you end up having to go to Berlin and there's a little sequence that you would skip otherwise. So there is actually some some variation in in, the, in your route through the game. 
eventually, though, the paths all meet up and uh, lead to the same endgame. So we did a bit of gameplay. We did a bit of tech. Let's uh, let's do a bit of dev story. How'd this game come about? Well, it's uh, it's simple enough. The movie was coming out, Last Crusade, and uh, it was deemed appropriate by uh, by Lucasfilm, I guess, uh, that a tie-in game should be developed. Now, scheduling was tight because, well, scheduling's always tight. And uh, Ron Gilbert, who uh, who we know from uh, Monkey Island, was put on the project along with uh, Noah Falstein and David Fox. These were kind of like you know the uh, the big guys at uh, at LucasArts in the early days. Now, unfortunately, this was around the same time that Gilbert was working on his initial concept and design for the game that would become The Secret of Monkey Island. But business is business, movie deadlines are movie deadlines, and uh, Lucasfilm was always primarily uh, a movie company, a film company. So, uh, you know, his cute little pirate game, yeah, that had to be put on hold. Uh, So much like movie novelizations, um, the game was intended to launch at the same time as the film. So the team didn't really have a final movie to build a game off of. They had a screenplay. Hey, here's the screenplay that we're going to make the movie off of. And uh, here's a bunch of concept art. And, you know, this is what, you know, what Indies costumes look like and all that noise. Um, so they put a game together based on that. Now, this resulted in a few references in the game that... Uh, don't make sense to the movie aficionados since the reference scenes were either edited out of the film or you know cutting room floor deleted scenes all that stuff for for one reason or another maybe because of this and maybe not the designers had a bit of a disagreement on uh, on the tone of the game's ending now should it be serious should it be light they couldn't really decide and i don't know if they either bo- didn't bother asking or if uh, you know lucasfilm didn't care so uh, they decided on multiple endings, and these multiple endings have sort of uh, varying tones. You know, some of them are more serious. I think uh, I think there's three endings. One of them is pretty serious. One of them's dumb and funny, and one of them's kind of middling. Uh, this game was also purportedly the first place one particular long-running LucasArts gag was started. At one point, when you're sneaking around Castle Brunwald, which is that uh, Nazi castle. Well, a lot at a lot of points when you're walking around the castle, you encounter a Nazi guard. But most of these guards have uh, they're they're all like little puzzles in and of themselves, and uh, you can either fight them or you can try and figure out how to get past them. Now, at one point, because you're Indiana Jones, uh, you can uh, masquerade as a salesman. And since you are wearing a fine leather jacket, you masquerade as a salesman selling fine leather jackets. Almost every LucasArts adventure game after this one would keep this gag running from, you know, Monkey Island to Full Throttle Monkey Island. It's in the, uh, I believe it's in the uh, the sword fighting, isn't it? You say, oh, uh, I'm selling these fine leather jackets when someone asks you what you're doing here. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those things and that this is where it started purportedly. Uh, further to this, Last Crusade introduced uh, the verbs talk and look to the scum verb list, which is actually pretty interesting if you think about it, because this is not, this is what, like, maybe the, I think Zach McCracken came out before this one and Maniac Mansion before that one. So there's no talk or look in Maniac Mansion? I don't know. I have to go back and remember, because I feel like there should be. Anyways, talk, talk uh, launches Indy into a, into a rudimentary system of dialogue trees and, uh, you know, different characters react to different uh, dialogue choices and all that. And obviously in follow-on games, 
especially Monkey Island, that dialogue system became very integral because of, you know, the uh, the sword fighting and, you know, dialogue trees are, are basically, you know, an, an integral part of adventure gaming. So Last Crusade originally released in 1989, along with uh, the theatrical release of the movie. Uh, the, this version that came out with the movie was in 16-color EGA. One year later, a VGA version would come out. And um, one very cool aspect of this game was uh, was in the box. All the versions of the game came with a feely, uh, you know, a, a pack-in physical version of Henry Jones Sr.'s Grail Diary. Now, it wasn't an exact replica of the one in the film, but it did contain information required to properly identify the Grail. Now, the cool thing with the way that the uh, the grill worked is that there was a set of uh, in the grill diary there's a set of letters and reports and notes that Henry wrote and Peter letters he received from people providing information about what they think the grill looks like out of that set when you start a game from uh, from the new game basically a, a random set of variables are are thrown up which identify which letters or which pieces of information from the diary are relevant to identifying the grail. So that's actually pretty cool. And you'd need that grail diary to, you know, read through because at one point in the game, they will tell you, oh, this entry and this entry are probably one of these two are probably the grail and they have descriptions in them. You know, maybe it's a plain cup with Aramaic writing on it or it's gold and jewel encrusted and it's silver. And so do by taking that at the end of the game, you're able to choose that along with a few other clues you gather throughout the game. You're able to choose the proper cup and, uh, you know, do what you got to do. Now the game released in 1989 and, uh, it was praised for its sound, its graphics and its gameplay. Now, well, modern, Gamers, and myself included, might consider it a bit rough. It was a great evolution of the base scum engine. Of the multiple paths, the dialogue trees, uh, they were all quite impressive at the time, especially with the crunch uh, and the hard deadline of the movie release. Actually, in a recent Thimbleweed Park stand-up meeting podcast, I think the one, maybe the most current one, so it's December 18th right now, the one from the Saturday before the 18th, can't remember what that was. Uh, Ron Gilbert mentioned that he wishes that, uh, you know, they could have done a bit more, polished the game a little bit more, but uh, the time constraints were just way too high. So with the success of the first game and of the Last Crusade movie, a sequel, of course, was ordered because, hey, who doesn't like money? So this brings us to our second entry in this uh, episode, 1992's Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Now, unlike Last Crusade, Fate of Atlantis is no tie-in game. This is a completely original Indiana Jones adventure, so let's get to it. Uh, We don't need to spell out the genre again. This is still an adventure game, so it runs on the scum engine, and uh, it still has all the hallmarks of any other LucasArts adventure we've already discussed with a few differences that we will get into. So as we launch the game, we are thrust pretty immediately into the story by way of a semi-interactive demo. Uh, I always remember being really immersed and finding this this approach to uh, to the introduction very novel. It really felt like I was in a movie. Uh, we see a dark room. The Raiders March comes up and the Indy logo splashes across the screen. Indy then swings in through a window. 
All right, Jones, how are you going to find that statue and all this junk? Now, we immediately gain control of him. You know, you'd think, oh, I'm going to sit back. There's going to be an introduction. I'm going to get introduced to the story. We're going to find out what's going on. But no, boom, the per- cursor pops up. You got to do something. Well, according to this, we, we got to find a statue. And we're in a dark attic looking room. And hey, there's a peculiar looking statue right here. Let's touch it. Well, before we can, a trap door opens under our feet and we fall down a floor. It looks like we're in the attic. Like I just said, uh, and now we are into into a slightly less dark library-looking place. Indy proceeds to stumble his way, or we proceed to control Indy, stumbling his way through uh, <laughs> what turns out to be the most structurally unsound and dangerous university building in the world. Uh, once he's fumbled his way all the way to the basement of this mystery building into the furnace room, we find the target of this introductory quest, a small gold statue in a locker. He collects it and he collects himself and makes his way to his office. But since this is Indiana Jones, his office is not empty. I'm back. Indy? You don't look at all well, Dr. Jones. Exploring our collections can be dangerous, Mr. Uh, what was your name again? Smith. Tell me, did you find a lock to match my key? You bet I did. Take a look. What are you waiting for? Let's open it. Why not? It's an obvious fake. You may think so, Doctor, but I believe we are opening a new chapter in history. My word, India, a small metal bead. Jewelry, perhaps? I still think it's a fake. Then you won't mind if I take it. Really, Mr. Smith? Stand back, gentlemen. I hope you've got a getaway car waiting. You'll need one. Hmm. What is fights? He got away. But we got his coat, Marcus. Hey, what's this? Klaus Kerner, huh? Good Lord, Indy, the man's some sort of agent from the Third Reich. What does the spy want with the police statue? <sighs> I lied, Marcus. I don't think it's a phony. I can't place the style, but it's old. Look what else our friend was carrying. An old copy of National Archaeology. And there you are in Iceland. Yeah, field supervisor for the Jastro expedition. My first real job. Who's the woman? Sophia Hapgood, she was my assistant, a spoiled rich kid from Boston, rebelling against her family. But where is she now? She gave up archaeology to become a psychic. How odd. You can say that again. Indy, Kerner found you. What if he finds her? We should warn the woman. You're right. I want to know more about that statue. You know, Marcus, the coldest year of my life was the one I spent in Iceland with Sophia. So Indy realizes Sophia Hapgood, former student turned psychic, is likely in danger. So he makes his way to New York in an effort to make contact with her before Kerner does. Uh, He arrives as she is giving a speech about Atlantis and uh, the spirit with which she communes Atlantean god Nur Absal. After making his way past uh, past the uh, doorman and outwitting a stagehand, Indy interrupts her talk and they make their way up to her office, which uh, Kerner apparently has already visited and ransacked looking for Atlantean artifacts. 
He didn't get everything, though. Her most valuable item, an Atlantean necklace, she keeps around her neck at all times. Now, she drops another tiny bead, like the one that they found in uh, back at the college, into the open mouth of the medallion, which allows her to summon what appears to be the spirit of Nur Absal. Uh, turns out she has a little bit more about, of an idea about what's going on here than Indy does. Turns out that a Nazi scientist named Hans Ubermann is trying to harness the power of these metal beads, known as orichalcum, for nefarious purposes. For, uh, you know, for guns and bombs, as he says. Now, this revelation leads Indy and Sophia on a quest to find uh, a book known as The Lost Dialogue of Plato, which is conveniently part of the collection back at Indy's place of employment, Barnett College. Uh, They make their way there, retrieve the book, and then we are faced with yet another unique gameplay mechanic. So based on some of your decisions up to this point, most notably how you interact with the doorman trying to get into uh, Sophia's talk, she will suggest one of three paths you can take through the game. They are the team path. Uh, If you select the team path, this will compel Sophia to join you in the, the quest for Atlantis. She'll support you through the game and you'll occasionally get to take direct control of her. Uh, Secondly, you can take the Wits Path. This sends Indy away on his own, and uh, on the way to finding out the fate of Atlantis, he will be faced with a multitude of puzzles that uh, he will need to overcome on his own. Finally, you can take the Fists Path, which encourages confrontation and fighting via the game's somewhat clunky combat system, which uh, has controls that are identical to those from The Last Crusade, which, uh, if you might remember from a few minutes ago, I said sort of sucked. Uh, Whichever path you choose, they all eventually converge at Atlantis itself, where you eventually have a final confrontation with Kerner and Uberman over control of the immense power of Orichalcum. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So, with the success of the first game, we needed another one. There was a problem, though, and that was staffing. By the time this game got to planning stages, LucasArts was running full steam, kind of at the height of their popularity, working on games like Monkey Island and The Dig, so all the big guns, Ron Gilbert, Gary Winnick, and the guys that worked on uh, the previous indie game, were, were occupied. This is when they tapped Hal Barwood to run the project and co-design the game along with Noah Falstein. Now, Barwood attended the University of Southern California School in Cinema and Television, which you may recognize if uh, you are a bit of a film buff. Here, he became friends with none other than George Lucas. Now, Barwood had only two game projects under his belt at this point, but his resume spoke for itself. This was a game based in a movie franchise, and he had experience writing and producing on such film projects as Sugarland Express and Close Encounters of the Third Kind with his other school chum, Steven Spielberg. Now, the main reason 
for throwing him onto this project was that the initial concept for this indie sequel was much closer to that of the previous game. So instead of wasting time writing an original indie story, the game was to be based on Indiana Jones and the Monkey King. And now this was an original script written by Chris Columbus based on an 11-page outline written by George Lucas. This script, in fact, was supposed to be the third indie film, but it was eventually rejected as uh, unrealistic. Also, uh, the bulk of the movie was to take place in Africa and featured some less than positive depictions of uh, African people. It was eventually replaced with the script of uh, The Last Crusade for the third indie film. If you want to know more about it, Google Indiana Jones and the Monkey King. There's a pretty good... uh, (laughs) A pretty good description on Wikipedia. Uh, one of the scenes involved Indy playing chess with actual people, and if uh, you know they got uh, taken out of the chess match, they would be burned alive or something. It was, uh, yeah, quite the game or quite the uh, movie. Well, <laughs> Barwood read the script and uh, realized that uh, a script that would result in a bad movie would also result in a bad game. Uh, He made the call and got approval to come up with an original story to base uh, this second Indiana Jones game on. He and co-designer Noah Falstein, who who himself had previously done work on the great flight sim Battlehawks 1942 that I already covered, uh, the two of them took to the Lucasfilm library. In what I can only picture as the inspiration for the game's intro, the two men combed the library looking for inspiration. Now, they came across a book that contained information about the world's unsolved mysteries. In it, they came across a depiction of the lost city of Atlantis. Now, it was shown in this book as uh, three concentric rings. They began thinking that a progression through these rings or these levels would be a pretty good concept for a game. So they decided to to, uh, center their story around a search for the lost city of Atlantis. Uh, The bulk of the background information for this game did actually come from the writings of Plato. So the search for the lost dialogue of Plato wasn't just the writers trying to sound smart. Uh, The concept of Nurab Sal, the concept of Orichalcum, and the appearance of the city came from two of Plato's dialogues named Timaeus and Critias, if uh, I'm saying those properly. Now, the Atlantean technology, the look of the other Atlantean gods, uh, the look of some of the machinery, Orichalcum as a power source, and more was pulled also from the writings of various psychics around the world. Apparently, psychics have a lot to do with uh, communicating with Atlantis for some reason. I don't know a lot about this whole thing, but uh, hey, who knew? Uh, This was also likely the inspiration for making Sophia a former archaeologist turned psychic. So, with the story research and outline... Barwood sat down and wrote the script. Falstein, who was, you know, the more game designery of the two of them, took the rest of the team and started conceiving of puzzles, managing art, blah, blah, blah. Uh, inspiration for the game's art was uh, taken from some ancient civilizations that are believed to have been influenced by the Atlanteans. The basic goal was to make the Atlantean architecture and scenery look consistent and alien. So Noah Falstein, came up with the idea for the three separate paths through the game to uh, to increase replayability. It, the addition of these paths was not trivial. It added a good six months of development time to the game, which was mostly spent uh, implementing the additional dialogue, especially the team path, as dialogue had to be written for Sophia. Now, the game's music was composed by the great audio team at LucasArts, including Peter McConnell, Michael Land, and Clint Bajakian. Uh... 
the Raiders March was rearranged into MIDI, as uh, you heard. And, uh, you know, along with quite a bit of other amazing location and event appropriate music, the iMuse system was leveraged as always. You know, I think the problem with covering a lot of these scum adventures is is that they're, they're all pretty good, right? Uh, the music is great as expected. The story is great as expected. Stop doing such good work, LucasArts. You're making my job boring. So after about two years, uh, the game released in floppy form. This was 1992. Development started around 1990, right after the original game, The Last Crusade, came out. 1992, it came out. The talkie version, which featured Doug Lee as the voice of Indy, because Harrison Ford was either not available or... Uh, you know, they didn't want to pay him again, uh, couldn't make it. Now, while Doug Lee is not Harrison Ford, I think he does a pretty good facsimile thereof. He kind of has that kind of snarky, smarmy indie voice. So the game was praised by critics and sold over 1 million units overall. Uh, The game captured all the things we love about indie. Drama, interesting settings, globetrotting, the right amount of fun. Uh, It was a great story and a great game. The story was considered strong enough by by some critics to hold up to any of the Indiana Jones films. And, uh, you know, I don't necessarily disagree. So, from Fate of Atlantis, there's additional indie games that were planned, uh, including one revolving around Hitler and the Philosopher's Stone, or the Sorcerer's Stone for you Harry Potter, American Harry Potter fans. Uh, that game was kiboshed because of its heavy uh, focus on wartime neo-Nazism, and uh, marketing basically came back to, uh, to management and said, yeah, we're not really going to be able to sell this very well in Germany. And Germany was apparently a very big market at the time for, uh, for adventure games, so uh, that plan was scrapped. Another game, Indiana Jones and the Spear of Destiny, which was not a first-person shooter, was also pitched, but it was canned because uh, development actually started, but they had outsourced the development to a a Canadian firm, and LucasArts had very little experience dealing with uh, contractors, and that project just kind of went sideways, and uh, it was killed. So a whole whack of other indie games came out, including Indiana Jones and the Emperor's Tomb uh, in 2003, then they were more action adventures rather than pure adventures, so I'm not really going to uh, touch on them. The Emperor's Tomb's available, so, uh, you know, we can always give that one a go. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, where can you get these Indiana Jones games today? Well, Last Crusade is only available via Steam. Uh, you can grab it along with Fate of Atlantis, but these are kind of odd versions. I'm not sure how they were put out, but they don't seem to run an emulation. They're kind of like these weird natively enhanced versions, uh, and the settings are sort of fixed. And for Last Crusade, I find them to be fixed at this odd smoothing level where the game looks better, I guess, but it seems a little bit off. I don't like putting a lot of smoothing in like my my DOS box and scum VM games. I mean, they're pixely games. They're supposed to look pixely. But uh, anyway, so yeah, I mean, Last Crusade is really the only place you can get it. Fate of Atlantis, I would recommend you get via GOG.com. Now, this is just a scum VM installation. This came out recently with that whole flood of LucasArts games that uh, that came out. So I was able to futz around with, uh, I actually just used my other scum VM instance and referenced the code and uh, or the game files and uh, I was able to get my MT32 running and all that stuff. Uh, GOG also has Emperor's Tomb available. So uh, that's a lot of fun too. 
Okay, so before I get to my verdict, we've got a metric ton of emails this time around. You guys had a lot to say about Fate of Atlantis, which uh, makes me very happy. So let's start off with Peter. And Peter writes, Hi, Joe and fellow blockers. Greetings from the Netherlands. I discovered your podcast through a friend on Twitter who recommended it because we both share a love for older games, and apparently he knew me better than I thought because I have incredibly fond memories of some of the games you've covered on the Upper Memory Lock podcast, especially the LucasArts Adventure Games. When I saw you were doing a podcast about Fate of Atlantis, I felt like I had to write in. This game is hands down my favorite adventure game and definitely one of my favorite games of all time. I still remember being in the department store when I spotted the CD version sitting on a shelf. It was a huge indie. I was a huge Indiana Jones fan, so I begged my parents to buy it for me. And while they did eventually cave in and get it, they unfortunately bought it as a present for my younger brother's upcoming birthday. Luckily, I avoided any traumatic experience from that because they told me and my brother that it was a gift to be shared. Luckily, my brother wasn't as much into adventure games as I was, and he seemed happy to let his older sibling play with his present. Writing this, I wonder if he did that because he didn't want to fight about it, or maybe because of our brotherly love and camaraderie. Eh, probably the first. Before my f- uh, before fate, my first experience was adventure game with adventure games was Monkey Island One, and at the time, it blew my mind that games could be about more than platforms, jumping, shooting, and high scores. You could have an actual story with interesting and funny characters, amazing locations, and puzzles that challenged your logic and sometimes your sanity and how obtuse they could be. A game that had all that plus Indiana Jones in them? Well, that was just everything my young mind could dream of. My memories of playing this game on our old 386 40MHz computer were, were one of the fondest I can remember. The graphics were far superior to that of Monkey Island, and uh, the music tracks were incredible and still etched and are still etched in my mind. What also blew me away was that this was one of the first games I played that had fully voiced characters. I remember fidgeting so long with the IRQ and DMA settings in the setup program to be finally rewarded with the voice of Doug Lee as Indy, a voice that for me ranks as equal to Harrison Ford in how he personifies in my mind the character of Indiana Jones. The other voices were also very impressive, from the mad Dr. Uberman to the threateningly evil Kerner, and of course the stunning voice of Jane Jacobs as Sophia Hapgood. The fact that halfway through the game, it gave you three separate paths to take, each with different puzzles, characters, locations, and stories, gives it immense replayability, and I played through all three paths multiple times. To this day, I haven't really played any game that gives the player such different gameplay experience depending on how you want to play. The game influenced many things in my life. It gave me an appetite to actually read up on The Legend of Atlantis, its sources, and theories of its origin. I wrote my history thesis on the rise and fall of Cretan Minuan, the the Cretan Minuan culture. I tried to do it about Atlantis, but they said no mythological subjects, so I kept that to a small chapter where I linked the Minoans as part of a a possible genesis of the Atlantis legend. I visited Crete a few years back, seeing the ruins of of, uh, Nosos, Uh, loving the fact that I knew several of them, both statues, frescoes, and structures, from how they looked in the game. It felt so incredible to see those amazing sights and then return at night to my hotel where I played Fate on my phone using Scum VM. It invigorated my interest in the history of old civilizations and their people. It gave me the drive to travel places equally as impressive. Uh, Last but not least, it gave me my love for adventure games or games that have compelling and interesting stories in them. And while today I don't have the same belief in the existence of Atlantis as I did when I was younger, I will forever picture it in my mind as it looked in this game. 
Anyway, I wanted to say how much I love your podcast. I enjoy listening to it while biking or just making my way around. Thank you so much for making them, and I hope you make many more of them. Best wishes, Peter. P.S. If I may, a very brief shout out to my Twitter friend. Thanks for recommending me the the podcast team, Che, forever. Well, thank you, Peter. And you know what? That's like really great, actually. And this is one of the reasons that I do like to do this show, because these are the stories that I like to hear. I like... You know, and and I have these memories as well of certain games, of going back and, and you know, having these games be very formative for you. And like, you know, the, having a memory like for me, you know, playing Gabriel Knight really made me want to go and visit New Orleans. Uh, you know, playing SimCity really made me care about how roads are laid out and why things are places in cities and how traffic flows and, you know, why water treatment has to happen and all that kind of stuff you know playing red baron and flight sim made me want to learn to fly a plane and i did so you know it's just like you know a lot of times i I talk about this every so often when i was a kid i played a lot of video games and my parents were always like stop playing games they're dumb blah 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 do something useful games are useful and games can be formative and games can be important and games can help you succeed in your life by making you curious and making you interested in things that you would not otherwise be interested in that you would not otherwise be exposed to and I think that is incredibly important so I know a lot of you people that listen to the show are parents if you see your kids quote unquote I I would hope that people listening to the show don't do this but you know if you see your kids wasting time quote unquote playing Minecraft or playing city skylines or even playing, you know, Halo or or something. Don't just tell them to stop. Think about why they're doing it. Don't let them do it all day. Blah, blah, blah. I'm really talking here, but, you know, good can come of this. And I think that's important to say. Thank you, Peter. Next, we got a little bit of an ad from, uh, from Ricky. And he writes, hello. I enjoy listening to your podcast and uh, I'm excited to see that the next podcast will be about Fate of Atlantis and other Indiana Jones games. If you happen to mention Indiana Jones fan games in your podcast, then I'm hoping you can shamelessly plug Binary Legends, Indiana Jones and the Seven Cities of Gold. I'm the production leader of Binary Legends and our small team has been plugging away on our adventure game studio uh, designed fan follow up to the Fate of Atlantis since 2009. Uh, Along with our game, there's a lot of indie fan games in the works partially due to the fact that the official sequel to Fate of Atlantis, Indiana Jones and the Iron Phoenix, got canceled, and uh, also because Fate of Atlantis is such a great game that it inspires many to imitate its format. And yeah, the Iron Phoenix, I think, was the, uh, I think that was the Nazi one. Uh, the Binary Legends website is uh, binarylegends.cbm8bit, the number 8bit.com. I'll uh, link that in the show notes. Thanks, and have a nice day. Ricky DeRoche, a.k.a. Dr. Fargo. Well, thanks, Ricky, and, and that's really cool. You know, I don't necessarily talk about fan games all that often but um this definitely seems interesting you guys should go check it out um you know i'm not sure how far a development is on it but uh i love fan games i remember I, i've i've played through quite a few of the space quest fan games the king's quest fan games uh and maybe i'll give this one a whirl too if uh i'd have to go and check let's see here i got my computer open compelling radio looking at websites oh it looks pretty good Let's see, is there a downloadable copy or is it still being... Oh, there's a demo out. So if you guys want to go and check out the demo, then please do. Cool. 
All right, so next we have a message from Martin. And we know Martin from the Hangouts, which uh, I will have to have. I know I'm late. I should have had one kind of this month but we're, or last month, but we will probably have one in, uh, in January. So Martin writes, this is a rare instance which I am able to share memories of a game that remind me of the trouble old timers had to go through to get a game working. I received a diskette copy of uh, Fate of Atlantis from a garage sale my grandma went to. I had never played a proper adventure game before, but was familiar with the genre from a vague memory of uh, the Star Trek adventure game. I remember slaving away at various menus at the age of 12, just to get the sound to work on my Windows 95 machine. But when I finally did get it to start running and got through an amazing and fun tutorial sequence, I was really hooked. Sadly, uh, my wits, my, my wits uh, was no match for, uh, for this game, and I never really got that far. I ended up giving up on the game and moved on with my life. I always lived in regret about not finishing that game, and I somewhat redeemed myself when the re-release of the game was dropped. I got all the way to Atlantis by myself, and the voice acting, how great was that? Sadly, I was unaware that there was even an option to save your game, a ridiculously stupid thing I know, but I had to start over from the beginning a dozen times because of the fist fights I lost. To this day, I still haven't beaten this game. I want to, but I really burnt myself out on it. I will return for it one day, I'm sure. Truly a gem. Now hurry up with that damn Day of a Tentacle re-release. I watched a sneak peek for that on many an old game and never got the chance to play it. I also forgot to mention on the last podcast that I own the collector's edition of Homeworld Remastered. I love my glowing mothership statue and art book. Keep on keeping on, Joe. Well, thank you, Martin. And you know, if you don't want to uh, to replay the whole game by yourself, if you head over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash umbcast, uh, I actually have in three parts a complete playthrough of the team path of Fate of Atlantis. And uh, it's been a while since I put up a video where I actually finished the game and I, I really got into this one, so I wanted to. And I'm going to try and, and, you know, if there's a game that is finishable in a reasonable amount of time and that actually has an ending to it, I'm going to try and finish them on the YouTube channel. So go check that out. If you don't feel like it, you can sit back and watch me fumble around like an idiot uh, losing fights. Next We've got an email from my good friend, Alima. She writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. I hope I'm not too late. Well, you are not. I just wanted to write in and share a couple of memories about the two Indiana Jones games, even though there isn't all that much to share. I remember playing Last Crusade on my grandparents' computer over the summer break. My cousin's sister and I would try and figure out the puzzles together. I particularly remember searching for the X marks the spot in the church in Venice for some reason. The game wasn't all that memorable to me though, and what really sticks in my memories uh, are playing it together as a family. Fate of Atlantis, however, is another story. I'm certain we got it back in the 90s as it was part of the LucasArts Archives Volume 1, but we were too wrapped up playing Day of the Tentacle and Salmon Max to actually give it a chance. I went back to it later in the 2000s. With the luxury of extra time on my hands, I was curious to discover one of those LucasArts classics, and I most certainly wasn't disappointed. It's pretty amazing that they managed to build such a complete game with three different paths. Although I will admit that my preference always goes to the team path, but I'm kind of fond of Sophia. She's such an interesting character, whereas Indy is just plain old Indy. Playing with voice work certainly adds a little extra that Crusade didn't have. Anyhow, I'm definitely looking forward to the episode. Thanks again for all your hard work on the podcast and block on. Emily, a.k.a. Alima. Well, thanks, Alima. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm partial to the team path as well, just because I feel like going through the game with uh, with sort of a counterpart is a lot more interesting. And 
and I do, I do like Sophia. And I guess was it Peter, the first email, emailer, uh, was talking about uh, her voice work, Jane Jacobs. Yeah, who does really good. Sophia's voice is is really good. And again, she kind of matches uh, indie point for point on the snark factor. You know, she he snipes at her, she snipes back at him. It's 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 really great. They have a good back and forth, especially for uh, for a game. Next, we have an email from Jenny. And Jenny writes, Hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Fate of Atlantis, the game that I wish Indiana Jones 4 had been. But that's neither here nor there. I'm not going to call the game perfect, but to me it's close. Frankly, the game's pacing is kind of awkward until you get to the path choice. And it relies a bit too much on randomization and trial and error instead of actual puzzles. But it's still fun to play every few years. I almost always pick the team path because Sophia's sass cannot be denied. (laughs) I didn't say it. Sophia's sass cannot be denied. It does make me sad that you never really get to play as her. I definitely don't count the brief period in the Azores where you have to convince Felipe Costa to do business with Indy. Perhaps it was limitations of the technology of the time, but I'd always thought that at least a labyrinth in Crete, more on that later, where the two briefly briefly separate, uh, they could have had their own puzzle sections. Ah, well. To this day, I still take a page from Sophia's book and use the word troglodyte as an insult. I sometimes also randomly parrot, pun fully intended, Hippocrates, friend of Socrates, whenever I read philosophy. And for those in the know, Sophia's I'm getting a message animation may make an appearance for me from time to time. Yeah, that's awesome. Obviously, Fate of Atlantis had definitely has definitely had an effect on me. Fun fact, during the seance scene when Trottier ask Sophia to guess how many fingers he's holding up behind his back, it is in fact possible to guess the right answer. During my many years of playing this game, I've managed it precisely twice. He will give you the sunstone and leave, no trickery required. Unfortunately, it's difficult to achieve even when you try to force it. It'll change each time you load the save. Yep, that's a random number generator right there, so uh, it's total chance. I mentioned on the Facebook page a while back that I had stories about calling hint lines back in the day, and this was one of them. My neighbor and I would play this game together, and uh, we'd always get lost in the labyrinth on Crete. I will always remember the recording of the woman's voice speaking slowly as they could get away with to milk more money out of the 900 number. On the team path, use the staff in the room downstairs which was incredibly unhelpful considering there were lots to begin with. Her parents gave us permission to call the number. We were good girls, but I'm fairly certain we called it more than they'd meant us to. Uh, We never got a talking to about the phone bill though, so bullet dodged. I wanted to take a few minutes to touch upon some of the lesser known Indiana Jones games that fall under the UMB purview because I personally think it's a crime that Dear Indy hasn't had more adventures, at least that people know about. The first of note is 1984's Indiana Jones in the Lost Kingdom for the Commodore 64. Uh, The game was developed and published by Mindscape, known for publishing such adventure classics as Deja Vu and Uninvited, among many, many others, and was a six-screen puzzle platformer. I can't say much about this personally, as I never had a C64, and YouTube has failed me in the way of playthroughs. It is notable for being the first Indiana Jones game not based off one of the movies. The second, also published by Mindscape, is 1987's Indiana Jones in the Revenge of the Ancients. Uh, The game is more or less a sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark, as it stars both Indy and Marion Ravenwood. Uh, It's a text adventure following Indy Indy and Marion to Mexico, 
where they have to stop the SS from releasing the power of the mysterious Mazatec power key. I remember playing this on my old Apple II, though I'm 100% certain I didn't beat it. I did play it prior to writing this email, and I can tell you one thing. This game wants you dead. Even for a text adventure, it's brutal. It's likely due to to, uh, the developer Angelsoft, uh, their nasty habit of randomly killing players even if they've done everything right. I know you're covering Last Crusade, but it's worth mentioning that at the same time, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the action game, was also released. If you remember playing Last Crusade on a home console, this was more or less the game you played. I had it on the NES, but constantly ignored it in favor of the Last Crusade graphic adventure game, damn maze sections. Similarly, Fate of Atlantis also had an action game counterpart released called, appropriately, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, the action game. Strange, considering Fate of Atlantis already has the Fists Path as an option, but I suppose LucasArts' marketing and publishing department had their reasons for developing an entirely separate game. This one was an isometric view action game that let you switch between Indy and Blonde Sophia at will. Uh, It more or less followed the plot of Fate of Atlantis, except a lot more random people wanted you dead. I remember seeing this on the shelves, and I know I played it because I'm watching a playthrough on YouTube and it sparked some memories, but I know I didn't own it, maybe my neighbor did. Getting into games that people are more likely to remember, we have 1996's Indiana Jones and His Desktop Adventures, which, uh, like The Fate of Atlantis, was also headed up by Hal Barwood. It was one of those casual games that had random variables every time you booted it up. As such, there's no real story to it. You were meant to blow through it in an hour. LucasArts also did one of these for Star Wars called Yoda's Stories. Finally, we move on to 1999's Indiana Jones and the Infernal Machine, the direct sequel to Fate of Atlantis. By the way, by way of Indiana Jones and the Iron Phoenix, a.k.a. Fate of Atlantis 2 in a better, more just world. Uh, Fun fact, Infernal Machine was supposed to have UFOs in it, but George Lucas told him not to put it in because at the time he was debating making a fourth Indiana Jones movie with aliens in it. And uh, we all know how that turned out. Sorry for the long email. I'm just a big fan of Indiana Jones and both retro gaming history and adventure games are kind of my thing. Keep up the good work. Regards, Jenny. Well, thank you, Jenny. That was amazing. And uh, I'm very glad that um, that you went through kind of those other games because, I mean, I, I could go through all, all the games, but then I'd just basically be talking about each one for five minutes and I like kind of diving deep. So I chose what I kind of thought were the quintessential ones and uh, we went from there. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That's uh, some amazing info there. All right, so to end off this huge... <laughs> flood of emails that I thank you guys for so much. We've got two voicemails. The first from Akago. Take it away, sir. Yo, Joe. This is Amir and Akago back again with another voicemail after a brief period of silence. Still very much enjoying the show and hearing you talk about all the good stuff from the past that I may or may not know about. You've definitely rekindled my interest in the System Shock games that I greatly enjoyed before, so I'm hoping to get back into those sometime in the near future. Of course, the real reason I'm talking to you again is because you're talking about one of my favorite games of all time. LucasArts' sublime adventure game classic Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Now, like several of the Star Wars games I played during the good old DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era, I never actually saw any of the Indiana Jones movies before I played this game. The most I remembered seeing at the time was the climax of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the Gestapo guy gets his face melted off, which scarred me so bad that I never wanted to see it again, so that probably explains why right there. But Fate of Atlantis was a real treat. 
My brother bought it for the two of us in the LucasArts Archives Volume 1, which also contained two other awesome LucasArts games, Day of the Tentacle and Sam and Max Hit the Road, which I still greatly adore to this day. But this game was a lot different compared to those. Instead of cartoony antics, it felt a lot more serious while still presenting a very compelling and fantastical globe-trotting adventure as you chased after the Nazis trying to get to the secrets of Atlantis before them. And there was a ton of variety present. The car chase in Monte Carlo, flying a balloon across the desert, fist-fighting bad guys, piloting a submarine, and all that in addition to the regular exploration, conversation, and puzzle solving. Not to mention the game having three distinct paths to play through, which just about blew my mind when I figured that one out. Now, not every part of the game is executed quite as well. The fist fights especially are annoying with the stiff controls, so I usually just skip over them by hitting the sucker punch key. And I'll be the first to admit that the balloon and submarine sections flat out suck. But there's just so many parts of the game that stuck with me over the years. The intro where Indy rummages around Barnett College, forcing your sidekick Sophia to be an unwilling assistant for an African knife thrower, or the climax especially where, in true indie fashion, the villains finally get what's coming to them. It's a real adventure, getting from A to B and seeing all the beautifully pixelated sights along the way and hearing the brilliantly moody ad-lib music, as per the standard set by LucasArts' games at the time. Even the voice acting holds up quite well, despite the lack of Harrison Ford. Sophia is nice and sassy, and Kerner makes for a great villain that you love to hate. Just, hearing the voice of Dr. Fred from Day of the Tentacle come out of the mouth of a German scientist feels a bit unnatural, but hey, still high marks all around. All in all, I love this game so much, I consider it to be the true fourth Indiana Jones movie, even though I was one of the people who didn't mind Kingdom of the Crystal Skull that much. And like all LucasArts games from this period, I can replay it over and over again and not get tired of it. So, Joe, you magnificent human being, keep being amazing, and remember, I hope you've got a getaway car waiting, you'll need one. Well, thanks so much, Akago. That is amazing. Of uh, yeah, just great, great, great memories. And uh, we'll see you in, a, in, in a couple of minutes. But uh, I have a suspicion that a lot of your thoughts kind of mirror mine. So to end things off, we have a voicemail from Trolls. Take it away, sir. Hi, I'm the Space Quest historian, but I play other games as well. And uh, I heard you were talking about uh, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis today, Joe, uh, which is, uh, of course, one of my favorite games. I think I've mentioned this once or twice. Hi, Darth. You're completely and utterly wrong. Uh, Darth hates uh, Fate of Atlantis because he thinks it's full of padding and shit puzzles. I disagree vehemently. Vehemently. I'm not sure how to pronounce that name, but you know what I mean. Name? Word. Sorry. Whatever. Um, I, when, when people ask me what's my favorite LucasArts adventure game, it's always a toss-up between Day of the Tentacle and Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Um, Day of the Tentacle kind of has you know, a, a, a romantic uh, sort of rose-tinted uh, memory in my head, at least, uh, because it was the first CD-ROM game I ever got, and it's got this interesting mechanic of switching between time periods and flushing items between time periods. It doesn't have what Indiana Jones has, however, uh, and, in, and of course you've already probably mentioned this, but Indiana Jones had the um, uh, three paths that you can follow through the game and solve the game in entirely different ways. Um, of course, they, they sort of coalesce when you reach Atlantis. Sorry, spoiler. Um, but um, the idea of having three different paths to take through an adventure game uh, 
was, uh, you know, that, that was the first time I saw that with Fate of Atlantis, and, uh, and uh, frankly, I didn't even know I had the option. I just did what every other player, I suppose, did, was to just uh, tell Sophia, yeah, I'm gonna go with you, uh, and then uh, complete the team path, and I think, I think pretty much everyone who's played Fate of Atlantis chose the team path first, because, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of used to having a buddy along for the ride, you know, in uh, Day of the Tentacle, you got your two buddies, and uh, Sam and Max, you've got Max, and, uh, you know, LucasArts games are always about, uh, you know, a buddy mechanic. So, naturally, I went with Sophia, and then, uh, I don't even remember how, but uh, some, somehow I, um, you know, traveled back in time or something, and, uh, and discovered that you can actually um, pick two different paths, and the game varies wildly. I mean, you visit the same locations, but the puzzles are different, and uh, sometimes there's, uh, you know, uh, multiple solutions to one puzzle, uh, even on the same path. And I just thought, my, my god, the design document for this game must be huge! And... Um, just, uh, you know, just uh, figuring out uh, uh, how to use locations uh, in different ways on different paths and, uh, um, you know, sometimes introducing a new location for uh, one path that doesn't show up in another path, there's extra content and such. I just thought that was that was an amazing achievement. Uh, and, uh, you know, since then I've gone on to play uh, the, uh, the Pandora Directive, which is arguably even more impressive with the uh, multiple paths and multiple endings and such, but uh, Fate of Atlantis was my first introduction to that mechanic, and I really, really... Uh, love that game for it, and I, and I still play it to this day. I still think it's a fantastic uh, masterpiece. Um, you know, uh, submarine sequences and balloon rides uh, notwithstanding. I actually quite enjoy the balloon ride. I don't know what's wrong with everyone. Um, so, uh, and I suppose you might uh, be touching a bit on uh, the uh, first Indiana Jones adventure game, uh, um, The Last Crusade. Uh, didn't actually play that very much, actually. Uh, I got a, a pirated copy, I suppose, uh, f way back when I was a little kid. Uh, started up, uh, played a bit of it uh, in, in the start of the game. Uh, you know, went into the boxing ring, did a few rounds and lost every time, and uh, then tried to go on the adventure, went into my office and couldn't figure out how to proceed. And luckily, the pirated copy I got came with a bunch of save games. So I could just, you know, skip ahead. Um, and I actually uh, skipped right on ahead to uh, the ending, and uh, managed to beat the ending of the game. You know, the uh, three-trial thing. Uh, first you avoid the saw blades, and then you step on the Jehovah uh, floor tiles, and then you uh, take the leap of faith, and then you uh, uh, find the grail. And obviously, the grail is random every time you play, so uh, I just, you know, picked it random, saved my game and picked it random. Uh, but I actually completed the game in that fashion, except I skipped the entire middle part of the game. I mean, I restored a couple of safe games, walked around the castle for a bit, didn't understand why I kept getting caught, even though I was wearing Nazi clothes and, and stuff like that. Uh, so, anyway, that's, uh, I'm trying to keep this short, because uh, I don't want to leave another ten-minute fucking, uh, voicemail. Sorry, I swore. I promised myself I wasn't going to do that. Wait, I've already said shit once. Anyway, sorry, everyone. Uh, so I am going to leave this voicemail here. I just wanted to, um, um, first of all, it's been a long time since I called in, and second of all, I just wanted to, um, uh, you know, fan game, fan, gush, that's the word I'm looking for, gush over this uh, uh, Fate of Atlantis game, because it truly really is one of my favorite uh, all-time adventure games, and uh, Hal Barwood is uh, a genius for um, figuring out all these uh, alternate solutions and alternate paths and such. That was my introduction to it, and I've since then I have loved every single game that has this multiple path uh, kind of thing, unless it's developed by Telltale Games. That's a whole different story, but anyway, thanks Joe, keep up the good work, and uh, keep blocking. Is that even a phrase? Yeah, we're, we're just gonna go with keep blocking. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna keep right on blocking then. Uh, well, thank you, trolls, and and you know you you didn't miss much. You really didn't miss much. Skipping the uh, the, the the middle mazy 
parts, but uh, we're going to get to that right now. So, do Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis hold up today? Well, let's start off with the Last Crusade. Now, I'm a fan of the movie. In fact, I'm in the minority in thinking it might actually be my favorite indie movie. The game, though, it's pretty frustrating. There's a few reasons for that. Uh, some of them are small. Some of them are big. On the small side, there's just there's quality of life stuff. In most LucasArts games, at least most that I am used to, you left-click on walk. You left-click on something to walk to it. And then you right-click on that thing to perform a default action, such as talking to an NPC, looking at an object, whatever. In this game, you can't do that, or at least I could not figure out how to do that. So, like I said, to do anything, you're looking at three or four clicks. It's infuriating, especially if you're used to the quicker way. I understand it's an earlier game, but it comes across to me as immensely clunky. Imagine to to, to, to activate a link on a website, or, you know, say you, you Google something and you want to go somewhere... Instead of just clicking on the link, you have to click on, like, find link, then hover over the link, figure out that that's the link you want, and then click on the link to select it, and then go somewhere else and click on go to link, and then click on go to link again. That's how this game works, and it sucks. Secondly, the game's writing is really uneven. Like, again, this might have to do with that disagreement between the designers on the tone and the tight time frame and all that stuff. But you got some character, like Donovan has this weird running gag whenever you run into him where he like shows up and he's like wet or dirty or something. And you're like, Donovan, what happened? And he's like, don't ask. And it's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's like a weird joke and it doesn't fit. And it's, that part of the game isn't funny. But all of a sudden there's this weird slapsticky stuff. So, it, I mean, it's it's too funny to the point where it's silly and it's not funny and then everything else is deadly serious and and then you know you get to the the castle and you meet these bumbling nazi guards who convince that you're you know a leather jacket salesman it's just all over the place but finally and most egregiously i've said it other people have said it this is a game that is full of mazes so many damn mazes for no reason there's catacombs in venice okay i get that but why do they have to be all convoluted? There's a Nazi castle. Why does a castle have to be a maze? A castle is not a maze. It's a place where people live. Why are there guards all the time? It's like they threw a JRPG into this game with random encounters. On top of that, you got to be wearing the right clothes on the right floor. Otherwise, you get into fights all the time. You can't save your game when you're in a hallway. You have to be in a room. I mean, it's, um, it's immensely infuriating, and it, it only serves to pad out a short game. I mean, these mazes, I could, give, I could forgive the other stuff a little bit, but these mazes made me really dislike this game. Even with a walkthrough, I was getting messed up. I was going the wrong way. So, you know, because of the out-of-place humor, because of the poor UI, and because of these miserable mazes, I cannot say this one holds up. It does not. Luckily, it's short. I burned through the whole thing in about two and a half hours with a walkthrough. So if you really want to play it just to see what it's all about, then it's not a long experience, but it's not fun. Now, on to the other thing, Fate of Atlantis. Now, even before my full replay for this show, I always claimed Fate of Atlantis was 
the best indie movie to come out since Last Crusade, even before there was a movie that came out after Last Crusade. And it is still better than Crystal Skull. Crystal Skull's not a bad movie. This is more of an indie story than Crystal Skull, though. It's a great game. It's got great storytelling. It's got great characters. It's got great art. It's got great voice acting. And it has great and appropriately positioned humor. And it has generally enjoyable puzzles. Now, as others have said, it's not perfect. For one, I think Akago said this, anytime you have to control a vehicle in this game, which you do two times, I believe at least, the game becomes incredibly frustrating. This is for one reason and one reason only. In both vehicles you control the submarine and the hot air balloon, you have to control them in one more dimension than you have accessible controls for. So for example, in the hot air balloon, you observe the whole scene from a top-down view. And you only have the capability to to turn the balloon left and right. However... When you turn the balloon to the left, it also, I believe, loses altitude. And when you turn the balloon right, it also gains altitude. So every control input you make actually does two things. So if you're too high, you have to go around in circles, little spirals, to get down to the ground. And if you are too low, you have to go in little spirals to the right or whatever to go up which is super clunky, and if you do it wrong, you end up being in the wrong place. So, you know, if they just had a down button in addition to a left and right button, that would have made life a lot easier. In the submarine, it's similar. You have controls for turning left and turning right, or facing left and facing right, I guess is more accurate, and you also have a control for your depth. However, the submarine, for some reason, in this 2D adventure game, needs to move in the Z-axis. It needs to move in and out of the screen. But you don't have a control for that. So when you turn, again, to the left, I believe that the submarine comes closer to the front of the screen. And, you know, looking closer to the front of the fish tank. And when you turn right, or left, or one or the other, it goes further away, deeper into the fish tank. You have to go into this little airlock. It's right at the front of the screen. And it really sucks getting the submarine there. Like, oh, it's just the controlling the vehicles. Yeah, it is pretty frustrating. But these are these are very short sequences in, in the larger game. Uh, secondly, once you get, you know, you get through the game, you choose your path, blah, blah, blah. You get to Atlantis, as Troll said. Sorry, spoiler. Guess what? There is a little bit of a maze. <laughs> and guess what? The maze is sort of being patrolled by Nazis. Uh, you can, you, if you try, you can avoid them, unlike in the first game where it's basically impossible to avoid the Nazis. This game, you can actually avoid them. And if you get into a fight, you can usually, if you want, talk your way out of it, a la Monkey Island style. Or you can put up your dukes. Now, if you want to fight, which I did because I wasn't smart, uh, the fights are actually pretty easy to win. I think, I'm not sure if you play the fist path, if the fighting is actually more challenging. But in this game, if you just spam the mouse button, you'll win the fight. Or as Akago said, I believe you hit zero on the keypad and that sucker punches. So you basically just win all the time. It's the it's the inst- inst- instant win button. So yeah, there are some issues. Uh... You know, the maze thing, again, it just serves to pad out 
a shorter portion of the game. I mean, I didn't find the game short. I thought it was a good length. I don't think it needed all this running back and forth. The maze thing, which isn't really a maze, but you have to uncover different rooms in different places and you have to avoid the guards and there's no direct path and all, all this stuff. It just creates a lot of backtracking and time wasting, especially if you're not sure what you're doing. So, eh. However, these two issues, well, I may be griping about them, they're much, much more forgivable in Fate of Atlantis than they were than all the issues in Last Crusade where it's a much better game. Everything's great about it except these two things. And frankly, it's one of my favorite adventure games of all time. I think you you need to play it. It's not perfect, but it's like, a yeah, it's good. It's like a 90, something like that. So, you know, play, play, play Fate of Atlantis. Okay, so before I close out the show, Jenny, who wrote in, uh, was kind enough and generous enough to provide me some GOG codes for Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis and Indiana Jones and the Emperor's Tomb. If you want them, I will give them away. Uh, just drop me an email with Indie Giveaway in the, uh, in the subject line, and we'll do that uh, to, of course, as always, podcast at umbcast.com. We'll pull those maybe in the first couple weeks of January, give everyone a chance to get over the holidays and all that. So, Fate of Atlantis, Emperor's Tomb, GOG codes, DRM-free, all that good stuff, courtesy of Jenny, indie giveaway to podcast at umbcast.com. So that's that. Thanks to everyone. We got a long show here, so many emails, and I'm so happy. I'm super sorry the show is so late, which is probably why there's so many emails. Uh, Life got real hectic. Uh, In between Christmas and New Year's, I'm going to be putting out a news show. And once that's done, I'm going to touch on a game that I played quite a lot of and I know my brother is totally obsessed with, and that is 1995's Sim Tower from Maxis. I haven't done kind of a Simmy building type game in a while, so let's do Sim Tower. I I really enjoyed that one, maybe because I want to, I don't know, run an office building one day or something. So as always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you've become my boss or whatever you want to call it, over at patreon.com slash umbcast. Uh, If you find some value from the show, consider throwing a few bucks my way. Over the holidays, I'm going to revise a couple of the uh, upcoming goals. I got some uh, some other cool ideas from uh, from some people about some things that I might want to do. So uh, I will let you guys know when that happens. But I always very, 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 very much do appreciate your help on the Patreon and your help via email. And anyway, I mean, not everyone can support with money. I totally understand that. So, you know, if you just put the name of the show out there, tell people you like it, send me emails, talk to me about games, go post on the Facebook group, talk to me on Twitter. I'm a lonely guy. I'm not a lonely guy, but you know, I like it when people interact and talk about the show. So let's, uh, let's keep doing that. So you can check out the show notes for this show and every other show at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter 
at twitter.com slash UMB show and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. I kind of split my time pretty evenly between those two. A lot of it's about Star Wars right now. Sorry if you don't like Star Wars. You can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash UMBcast where I put up videos of my game research session. There's definitely going to be some Sim Tower on there and I'm trying to think of some other things to do up there because I actually like doing video now. I figured out some some ways to get over my uh, streaming anxiety <laughs> such as it is. Uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. That is that and we will see you next time for Sim Tower here in the upper memory block. Battle 
listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.